Well, as Jason said, today we're going to begin a, a survey over the book of Acts. Um, so hopefully all of you have your Bibles. Um, you can go ahead and turn there to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Um, the book of Acts, many Bibles give actually a, a fuller title to. And they, they draw out the title and call it the Acts of the Apostles, which is most certainly what the book is about. Um, I actually like the fuller title that John MacArthur says he would like to give to the book, which is the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, which I think is good because he really is just attempting to give credit where credit is due as far as all these miracles that we're going to see that take place in the early church that the apostles are able to do. And uh, for us, you know, with, with, with all the big deal that comes with and everybody's attention that's drawn to the miracles in the book of Acts, I think for us, um, getting through the book of Acts is going to be a miracle in and of itself. I'm going to try to get through this book as, as quickly as possible. It's really just going to be a survey. We're going to hit the high points. Um, it's 28 chapters long. Um, we've, I've done in Sunday school the book of James, the book of Galatians, or five and six chapter books, and we were able to literally cover every verse. Um, but with Acts, that's really an impossibility in what we're trying to do with Sunday school. So um, the first couple of chapters, we're, we're really going to dig in pretty deep. and get, I really want to get grounded in the book. And as we move throughout the book of Acts, we're going to speed up and, and, and go a little quicker um, but today we're, we're really going to get into chapter 1 um, most definitely. The book of Acts um, is really a record of the early church. It takes us all the way from the ascension of Jesus, where Jesus is taken up into heaven, all the way through the early church history to about 62 A.D. 62 A.D. is what most conservative scholars date the book of Acts. Um, they give it that date primarily because of where the book of Acts ends. It ends with Paul still in a Roman imprisonment. Um, church history tells us that he actually gets released from this Roman imprisonment at some point in time, actually makes it as far to Spain to preach the gospel, and then gets imprisoned again where he ends up um, being martyred. Um, so, so all of that information coming together helps us date the book of Acts to around 62 AD for those of you who are interested in, in those types of things. So this, this will be a study of the early church, a history, a, a, the, the primary church history document that we have of the early church is the Acts of the Apostles. Um, so anybody who's interested in studying church history or really getting into it, this is where you want to begin. Um, there's many good church history books, but you want to start with the inspired, God-breathed version of church history, the book of Acts. And so it's really going to be a privilege for us to do what we're doing and study um, how God was working in the, in the very early church. And, and that's what we're going to do. So by way of introduction, let's just look here at the very first verse in the book of Acts. Because here we're going to see that the author of the book of Acts right off the bat references another book. Let's look at verse 1 here. It says, the first account I composed, Theophilus about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up into heaven. Okay, so I just wanted to start right there and take note that the author references a previous letter that he wrote um, to Theophilus. Theophilus is, is the name of the person he's addressing this letter to, this work. Um, he references a previous work. And so by way of introduction, I'm going to use the introduction of that previous book that's going to introduce us into both letters that Luke wrote. So if you will with me, turn to Luke chapter 1. And we're going to use Luke's introduction to his gospel as really the background and introduction to both books that Luke writes. Luke wrote the book, the gospel account of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And so let's look here at the, the first few verses of the book of Luke for introduction. It says this, verse 1, Luke chapter 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated 
everything carefully from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order most excellent Theophilus so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so here we're seeing that the book of Acts is in fact a continuation of a previous letter written to this he's an unknown brother his name's Theophilus um, but he must be a, a, a blessed brother to have Luke writing and doing this much research to address him a letter um, he was definitely a beloved brother um, but it's, it's really worth noting some of the things that Luke says here in these introductory verses in Luke um, look at verse 2 again he says just as these things were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses so what Luke is, is doing here is Luke is giving us the sources of where he compiled and where he got all the information that he's putting into his gospel. He's getting it from the eyewitnesses, from the eyewitnesses who were servants of the word, which is um, obviously referring to the disciples who had been with Jesus from the very beginning. This is who Luke got all of his information from. Verse 3 goes on to say that, he investigated everything carefully from the beginning to write out for you in consecutive order. And so from this, we just can really take comfort in the meticulous detail that Luke is saying that he put into this research. Um, a lot of research would have gone in to Luke's writing. And then uh, lastly, and which I think is of most importance, look at the last thing he mentions here in his introduction. Because, as I said, this is a history book. The, the Gospel of Luke is going to go on to the book of Acts, and it's going to be a history of the early church and what all was going on with the apostles. Um, it's a history book, but it's not simply a history book. Because look at the end of verse 3 there, going into verse 4, where he addresses most excellent Theophilus. He says, So that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And so the purpose of Luke's writings is not simply a history lesson. It's not a history le lesson in and of itself. Um, Luke is concerned with the foundation of, of his brother's faith, of Theophilus. He's writing to Theophilus. He wants him to know exactly what happened with Jesus Christ and exactly what happened with the early church. He, he's worried about the foundation. And so it's not just history. I think it's discipleship and possibly even evangelism is his, is his aim and Luke um, obviously had this, this brother named Theophilus in mind as he wrote. Um, but we know that the Holy Spirit had bigger plans than just one man for this letter. And so that's why we have it in the Word of God for us and for his church. So just, um, you can flip back to Acts if you'd like, Acts chapter 1. Luke himself um, was not uh, Jewish of descent. Luke was a Gentile. And uh, we're not sure exactly when Luke got converted and became a disciple himself. We don't know the exact timing of that. Um, there is some evidence, or we definitely know, I'd say just from that, what we just read in Luke, that he got his information from the eyewitnesses. So he definitely associated, um, that, that's pr pretty good proof text to show that he associated with the apostles and disciples at that point. And we know from the end of Acts, from starting in chapter 16 onward in the book of Acts, the, most of the exegetes and the commentators, they, theologians, they entitle this section the we section of Acts. They call it the we section of Acts because at that point, Luke starts using the second person personal pronoun we. Instead of just saying Peter preached this and Paul went here, he starts saying we preached this and we went here. He starts including himself in all the journeys and all the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And so we know um, by this and by other letters that Luke was in fact uh, with the Apostle Paul in his, in his ministry endeavors, at least beginning from Acts 16 and, and onward. Uh, mentioning some of the other letters that Luke's uh, mentioned in, Colossians 4 verse 14 tells us that Luke was a doctor by trade. Luke was a physician by trade. Um, and to those who get into studying the book of Acts, it, and many of you may have heard or know already that it wouldn't surprise you that Luke was a doctor, being that the Greek that 
Luke wrote with, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, is, is definitely a higher, level, more sophisticated level of Greek than the book of John, for instance, which is a little more simplistic and, and common. So it wouldn't surprise you that he was a professional, a doctor, with the level of, of uh, his writing and his language and his um, choices of words, all of these things, his grammar. It's more difficult Greek. Um, so, yeah, Luke... The doctor wrote these books. Um, so with his gospel, just to get us back to, to where we want to be, Luke and his gospel takes us all the way from the birth of Christ through Christ's ministry. He records the death, burial, resurrection. He even records the ascension of Jesus back to heaven. And this is where he picks back up um, in the book of Acts, uh, back at the resurrected Jesus um, ministering with his disciples. And here in verse 3, when he picks up um, at, at this line in his timeline, he adds a detail here in verse 3 that I think is significant. Um, so let's read verse 3 together in, back in Acts chapter 1. It says, To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. What I wanted to point out from verse 3 was the fact that it, it gives us here the timeline of Jesus having been raised from the dead and how long he ministered with his disciples before being taken back up into heaven. It says right here he was with them for 40 days. This is the only place in Scripture. Luke didn't even mention that in his gospel account, how long Jesus was ministering with his people, but that's a significant amount of time, wouldn't you agree? 40 days that the resurrected Christ is with his disciples. Um, it says he gave them many convincing proofs um, during this time, some of which we, we have recorded for us in the Gospels. You know, uh, the, the disciples being able to see the holes in his hands, the hole in his side, um, the eating, he would eat with them. All of these things were uh, things that I think Paul would have, been, I mean, uh, Luke would have included in his convincing proofs. So for 40 days, the disciples had the resurrected Jesus in their midst and for me I really just thought of the faith that would come out of having the resurrected Jesus with you for 40 days I mean that's amazing just the, the foundation of, of faith that you would have from being an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus knowing that he died on the cross knowing Roman crucifixion happened knowing that Mary was there and John was there and witnessed the death and to have him back with you um, is amazing I think it, it goes to show that the faith is so amazing that as we'll go through the book of Acts, we'll see that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and, and the reality of that to the apostles and disciples, they're willing to lay down their lives for this truth. Many of these disciples are going to go lay down their lives for the reality that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And that, that's, that's significant. Um, and I didn't want us to lead us there because I think a lot of the times especially going through the book of Acts, as much as we want to have a, a biblical, new covenant, apostolic-type church, um, a lot of times, man, we wish we were there. You know, I wish I would have seen the resurrected Jesus. But I just wanted to quote quickly the words of Jesus himself. Um, he says these words as a, when what we call Doubting Thomas was saying, I wouldn't, I'm not going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead unless I see the holes, unless I see the hands. This is what Jesus says after graciously showing Thomas um, the proof, he says, because you have seen me, have you believed? But blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. And so I think Jesus is really just bringing out the point that it's a blessing to have the faith that we've been given that doesn't require sight. None of us have seen the resurrected Jesus Christ, but yet we're here worshiping him, studying his words, believing, hopefully being willing to lay down our lives just as they were by faith. By, by a faith that didn't require sight. So I just wanted us to be encouraged by the fact that God is pleased and he's glorified of the fact that we have not seen Jesus rise from the dead, but we trust his word on it. We believe God. Right? Okay, so let's, let's pick back up in the text. Let's pick back up in verse 6 here. Because there's another interesting note here. We're going to get a glimpse into where the apostles are theologically at this point. Um, in the timeline verse 6 says so when they had come together they were asking him saying Lord 
Is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times of the epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And so we see here that still throughout, despite all of Jesus' teaching and his his earthly ministry, the disciples are expecting and wanting Jesus to commemorate this earthly kingdom right, right now. Yes, you prove that you're the Messiah. You rose from the dead. You've been declared the Son of God. Let's Let's do this. Let's restore Israel, you know, to the political theocracy that we all know you want, God. And let's do it. Let's do it now. Um, what's, what's also interesting is that Jesus doesn't deny that one day that is going to happen. He doesn't say, you know, I'm never going to come back and reign as sovereign Lord over everything. He doesn't say that. But he makes another point. And the point is, is that Jesus is concerned about the spiritual growth of his spiritual kingdom right now. That's, that's going to be the job of the apostles. Um, that's, that's going to be their call. Um, their commission is to preach the gospel and to grow the, the spiritual kingdom of God here on earth by the preaching of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. That's what we're going to see happen in the book of Acts. Um, there in verse 8, if you'll notice, Jesus calls them to be witnesses. To be witnesses, which is a significant word. Pretty much everyone I read took note of this word and emphasized its importance in the book of Acts. The word, the Greek word is martyres here. Martyres, where we get the word martyr. Jesus is calling them to be witnesses, to testify. And so we know that many of them, because of that, became martyrs. And so, hence the word took on that meaning. But this is what they're called to do. This is what they're going to be doing throughout the book of Acts, is being witnesses. Being witnesses and testifying of everything they know that Jesus Christ has done and what God's done through him. Um, he even Jesus even gives us the timeline there of how we're going to see this happen as we go through the book of Acts. In, in Acts, at the end of verse 8, he tells them, you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, which I think are, are grouped together, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That's going to be the how we're going to see the, the spreading of the gospel, the spreading of the church. It's going to begin here in Jerusalem in the next chapter. It's going to move to Judea and Samaria, the outlying areas, and then all the way to the ends of the earth, which probably in the mind of, the, of Luke and of, of Paul would be Rome, to take the gospel to Rome, which at that time was considered the ends of the earth. We know the gospel goes to cover the entire planet. Uh, but that's what we're going to see happen. We're going to see the gospel um, going out in this call to be witnesses being fulfilled throughout the book of Acts. Does anybody have any questions, comments about what we've covered so far? <clears throat> yes, sir. Does this cause a problem for Jehovah's Witnesses to be Jesus' witnesses, not Jehovah's Witnesses? Right. <laughs> what, what is their bent on that? What do they say? That they should be Jesus' witnesses, but yet they say we're Jehovah's Witnesses? Is that what it is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the call is for them to be his witnesses. That's a good point. I wonder, That's a good point. I wonder about that. Yeah. Yeah, we're to be Jesus' witnesses, which in turn is Jehovah's Witnesses. But they seem to skip a step they there. Bypass they bypass Jesus in their in their witnessing encounters. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, hey, Chris, yes, I sir. just want to point out, mm-hmm. um, with Theophilus, Theophilus. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of mystery surrounding Theophilus, you know, who he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is the fact that he addressed him as ec- most excellent Theophilus. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people think he was like a, uh, some kind of government politician or something. I'm sure right. you read about that. Yeah. Um, but what's amazing to me is that, you know, this 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 man, whoever he was, probably somebody of great, you know, influence or, or, or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, um, he was given proof, okay? He was given proof of Christianity, but it was after his conversion. Right. It was because he was already converted to Christ. He was, you know, taught these things. He was probably a brother by this time, but he is still given proof. So he's probably just like, you know, some powerful, wealthy theologian or a politician or something that that just wants to know more about, you know, the facts. Yeah. You know, like, why do we believe what we believe? And I just thought that was a good example of, you know, that's how we should be, you know, not in order to believe, 
but just to encourage our faith, you know, that's why we yeah. want to. That's why we want to study the, the history and the facts and the proofs of the Christian faith. Yeah, that's good. So Theophilus probably maybe who knows what converted him. Maybe he witnessed the resurrected Jesus or or believed the just the gospel message in general, what God has done, but wanted to know more. And Luke gave him more in a, in a thorough account. Yes, sir. Wasn't uncommon in this day for someone who's wealthy to have somebody personally write them a historical account mm-hmm. about yeah. something too. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, that's right. That's possible. And I was just gonna say, you know how Luke, well, he opens with all of that, like you know, the truth that you may know, you know, in the book of Luke, and then he ends it with um, ends the book saying. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, um, he part speaking of the ascension. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Yeah, I have. You know? And so yeah, that's, that's good. a good one for the J Dubs too. Just remember the not very last. Still trying to very, convince you. very last. Ch- that, just remember, you yeah. know, the end of Luke. That that last section there. They worship Jesus. Yeah, Trish is mm-hmm. pointing out the fact that it explicitly says that the apostles, when Jesus ascended, they worshipped him. It gives the same account at the end of Matthew's. If you're trying to remember where you can find that to reassure yourself of the worship of Jesus Christ or show a Jehovah's Witnesses that Jesus was worshipped. The end of Matthew in the Ascension and the end of Luke in his Ascension, it says they, they, they worship Jesus. Amen. They worship Jesus in his Ascension. So that's a perfect intro into the next section, which in most people's Bibles is entitled the Ascension. Let's just read verses 9 through 11 really quickly. It says, And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. They also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you watched him go into heaven. So just a couple of points on this section um, I say a couple, I really have more points than there is even verses in this section, but um, Trish mentioned the first point that I have, which is significant because in the Acts account of the Ascension, they don't mention even the worship. But if you go back to the Luke account of the Ascension, Luke there does mention the fact that they, they worship Jesus um, as he ascended. The second thing I wanted to point out is notice the language of how these angels, these two dressed in white, how they describe the return of Christ. They said that Jesus Christ will return in the same way that he left. And how did he leave? Well, Jesus, as we said, had his resurrected body. Um, With his resurrected body, he ascended um, to the right hand of the Father. He was carried up with his body. Um, which Jesus Christ has now in heaven. The God-man took on the nature of of man and and keeps that nature. He's in heaven right now with his his glorified human body. And the point that the angels are making that he's going to return in the same way, which would mean his return is going to be visible. The the God-man is going to return in the sky just as he he left, and we'll, uh, and we'll, we'll see him. We'll see Jesus Christ when he returns. Um, Another point that we can draw out of just this section here in Jesus' resurrection and ascension is the fact that this gives us assurance um, that we likewise will be restored to our bodies at the resurrection and our bodies will be united back with our souls as we're supposed to be, as we were made to be, and we will fully be taken into heaven. Body, soul, mind, our, our full being will will be in heaven we will be reunited with our bodies we won't just be disembodied spirits you know floating around we will we will have our glorified body in heaven and this assures us of that the, the book of revelation calls jesus the firstborn from the dead and it and yes sir do you have something well um i was just going to ask you kind of put you on the spot a little bit but <laughs> let me let me take a drink and it gets <laughs> but my question is like why is it important that you know um, 
that we can't just be like disembodied spirits floating around. I mean, I think the significance of it is that God didn't create us simply as disembodied spirits. He gave us a body, um, and that's the reason we lose our bodies because of the fall, because of sin, because of death, our body dies. And that's not the way it was meant to be. We, are, we were created to have body and soul as one. I think the fall and sin causes us to lose that, but God's going to restore that as it's supposed to be. And so I think, it's, that, I think that's the significance to the fact that God wants us to be restored, how we created us, how we're supposed to be, pre-fall, body and soul together. I mean, that's, that's what I like think not, about it. It's almost like it's not the image of God. Right. We wouldn't be in the image of God anymore if we... Right. I mean, the image of God was only declared after man was... Created. Fully created, and mm-hmm. not just the soul, or not just the body. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Think, yeah. I think on that point, it's good. I think Ephesians 1 talks about the summing of all things in Christ. Mm-hmm. I think it's good to remember, like, to fully summation all the covenant between the Father and the Son, uh, the image of God, the restoration of the image of God, and fully have that new creation that we're created in Christ for, mm-hmm. have it culminate and point toward the Son as we are restored to those four, <coughs> that, that right image of God, yeah. without sin, without folly. You know, and we'll be to, and we'll be like Christ. Commune with God, you know. Yeah, we'll be like Christ as well. Christ, like as I said, has his glorified body in heaven. So will we. Amen. You know, that's that's going to be a, that's a miracle. Um, okay, so la- the last point from the ascension, uh, which is which is an interesting point, I think, is this: is that Jesus? It was necessary for the ascension to happen. Jesus says because the Holy Spirit would not have been given in the way that it was without Him ascending to the Father. And the text for that is, is found in John 16. I'll just read it to you. Jesus said this. He says, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. Speaking of his, his ascension. For if I do not go away, the helper, speaking of the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so there was something to this plan of God that the sending of the Holy Spirit in the way that he does in, at Pentecost in chapter 2 um, it necessitated the ascent of Jesus first. So Jesus says, as long as I'm here, I'm not going to send you the Spirit in the way that I'm, I'm going to send it in Acts chapter 2. But if I go, I'll send the Spirit to you. So it was a necessity in the plan of God to do it like this, to have Jesus fully um, accomplish redemption, to be resurrected, glorified, declared the Son of God, ascended to the right hand of the Father in power, and then... The Spirit's given. That's that's God's timeline. Yes, sir. What's the difference in the presence of the Holy Spirit, say, when Jesus, after he was resurrected and he appeared to the disciples and he blowed on them and, and they received the Holy Spirit versus Pentecost, where they received the Holy Spirit again? We're going to spend the next three classes just on that question. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's, it's a hard question. It's, it's a really big question. Um, to iron out all the differences... And all the distinctions, because we, we know some things for sure. We know that the Holy Spirit has always um, been in some way given to those who believe. We know that the Bible teaches you can't believe unless the Spirit does the work of regeneration. You know, Jesus tells Nicodemus in, in John 3, an Old Testament saint, um, that he should understand the concept of re- regeneration. The Spirit, blow, you must be born again. The Spirit must do this work. Um, so we know the Spirit was doing those things in regeneration, and, and, and we see the Spirit working in many other ways throughout the Old Testament. So we know the Spirit's there, but there's definitely a distinction and something else happening at Pentecost um, that we'll, we'll really get into next week um, as we look at some of the prophecies about that. Um, but ironing out all the differences, we know, I think, the main difference is that the Spirit was given to the New Covenant Church for a particular purpose. It was to empower them to go do this witnessing activity. Amen. I think that's the biggest, um, maybe the outcome of this new work of the Spirit, what all was actually happening is, is I mean, it's hard. We can get into it maybe next week a little more, but um, the Spirit's always been working in, in, in the people of God. You, you can't be saved without the Spirit, so he's always been there, but something is def- something big is definitely about to happen in the next chapter, next chapter 2.
in the giving of the Spirit. Um, something different is going to... Yes, Emilio, go first and Jason. Uh, okay, uh, I was just going to say, you know, you, you, you find even in the book of Acts, the repetition of the word boldness after Pentecost. Mm-hmm. So it's like the, the disciples go from a position of hiding out in the upper room, praying, almost not knowing what to do now. Right. You know what I mean? So they're like without it. They know what the mission is, but it's almost like they're waiting for something that you know, to empower them, like you said, to go. And then they're given like a newfound boldness where it's like first Peter was like denying Christ in front of a servant girl. And now he's like proclaiming in front of the magistrate saying, hey, look, if you want to put us to death, I mean, that's up to you. You know what I mean? We're going to obey God. Yeah. So it's like the boldness is definitely a crucial component of Pentecost. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I think. Jason, do you have something? Um, I guess tying in with that, because Jesus also says to the disciples, greater works than these you will do. Mm-hmm. And obviously we know there's not a greater work in quality of atonement. Now, he wasn't doing the atonement at that time. Right. But I see it as in quantity in the sense that he sends them out to the ends of the earth. Yeah. And so where he, Christ, only spent a certain, he was only within a certain location, been told less than 250 miles. And, but... The disciples then and now go to the ends of the earth to communicate his word. Yeah, so doing all the great miracles that, that he was able to do by the because Jesus Christ was full of the Holy Spirit. Now they're full of the Holy Spirit and they're able to do. Um, You're now being equipped. Now go. <laughs> yeah, one I, I y'all brought to mind one more note that I had on a different subject, but another reason the Spirit was given to the disciples in this way, John fourteen twenty six says the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And so the, the giving of the Spirit specifically to the disciples and apostles in this way would have, um, God used that to bring to their remembrance everything Jesus said because they're the ones who are going to write out Scripture. They're the ones who are going to give the Scripture its authority and even the book of Luke, you know, would have had to have been attested by an apostle to be, to be Scripture. That's just another... Another aspect of what the Holy Spirit was doing with the disciples, um, but that, that's yeah, that's a huge question. It's a good question, um, and I think as we go through the book, we'll kind of try to iron out as many of those distinctions as we can. Um, so let's go on to the last section here of chapter one, um, the upper room. What was going on in this upper room that the apostles were in? Uh, let me read verse twelve. And I'm just going to read verse 12 and 14. It says, Then they, speaking of all the apostles, he's about to list them out. It says, They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And then just verse 14, he says, And these, the twelve, with, or the eleven, really, with all one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So, um, the disciples, in obedience to Jesus' command, they go back to Jerusalem. They, they go to this upper room, and they're there waiting for the, the promise of the Spirit to come. And what does the text say they're doing here? What's going on in this upper room? It says that they're praying. They're praying. Um, prayer, is, is we're going to see, is just an integral part of the early church. I mean, it's... You're going to see prayer playing a significant role all the way throughout everything that Peter, the disciples, Paul is going to be doing in in everything it says. Prayer is going to be huge. And so I just wanted to emphasize in all the ongoing debates about what aspects and what activities of the early church continue, which ones don't, you can rest assured that prayer continues and is to be continued in in, in the church now. And you can take comfort in the fact that if you want to be like the apostles and have a, a church like the New Testament church, prayer has to be there, and it should be. You know, prayer is not only mentioned throughout the later epistles, it's commanded. You know, so there can be no doubt in our minds that if we want to be like the New Testament church, prayer should be in abundance. It should be in abundance in our church. So, the, so they're all together. Um, and out of all this ensuing prayer, Peter stands up. In the midst of all this prayer, Peter stands up. And let's read just a chunk right here. It's going to be the last big chunk, uh, verse 15 through 20. If, if you're there, I'm going to try to read a little quicker. 
It says, At this time Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, Brethren, the, spirit, the, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. But now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his intestines gushed out. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hekeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. And so, in, in the midst of all this prayer that's going on, this waiting for the Spirit, Peter stands up, because Peter recognizes the significance of, of what has happened. And, and what he's referring to here, he, he, he tells us, it's the betrayal of Jesus by Judas um, is a fulfillment of Scripture. And Peter, um, another uh, evidence that the Spirit's already still working, even though it hasn't come in power like it will in Acts chapter 2, that he recognizes that the betrayal of Jesus was not just a random act of Judas's free will, but it was in fact fulfilling the scripture. That's what was happening there. Prophecy was being fulfilled. Scripture was being fulfilled. Um, and another important note on that, if you look in verse 16, who does it say is speaking through the mouth of David in verse 16? The Holy Spirit exactly is who's speaking through David as he wrote the Psalms, which is just important because it just clearly um, attests to the fact that the Old Testament, the Psalms are inspired by God or God breathed. The Holy Spirit was speaking through David as he wrote these Psalms. Um, yes, sir. Since we brought up the topic of Jehovah's Witnesses, they believe that the Holy Spirit is a uh, an impersonal force, and so yeah. you, especially in Acts, you see this: the Holy Spirit speaking through somebody. That's kind of attests in the opposite of what they what they you know, believe. Exactly. And that happens a lot. Yeah. They don't believe the Spirit is a person. Right? We believe the Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons make up the one being mm -hmm. who is God. Right? Three three persons. But they don't they don't see the Holy Spirit. They think the and they get it from texts like Acts one eight, where Jesus said there, You're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. Okay, so the Holy Spirit to them is just a power, it's just a force. It's not a person. Um, but like our brother's saying, can a power speak? Can a, can a power do all the things that the Holy Spirit's going to do in the book of Acts? Um, he's going to teach, as we said, the apostles all things. The Holy Spirit's going to teach them. Um, people are going to grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. Um, he's going to explain Explicitly, for me, it's just the communication that the Holy Spirit gives. He's, he explicitly tells Peter to go with uh, to Cornelius' the house. I mean, just things like that. Um, yeah, Ananias and Sapphira are going to lie to the Holy Spirit. I mean, how do you lie to electricity? How do you lie to it? Yeah, <laughs> how do you lie to electricity? So that, yeah, an excellent point. Um, that yes, we we do believe that the Holy Spirit is a person. Holy Spirit is a person. Um, the New Testament refers to him in the in he, the first person, masculine, singular. You know? In John, uh, John 16, 3, the Holy Spirit hears. He hears. So yeah. that's pretty person. That's, that's good. <coughs> that's, a, that's a good point. Um, let's look specifically um, at verse 20. Again, because verse 20 is an important quotation that Peter sees in Psalm 109, verse 8. It's a prophecy that, that's going to be fulfilled by them. And the fulfillment there of, of Psalm 109 is that another must take his office. And this prophecy written in the Psalms hundreds of years before Jesus betrayed Jesus is going to be fulfilled in the fact that because Judas betrayed Jesus and hung himself and died... Um, 
because Jesus established this 12, this special 12 at the beginning of his ministry. They want to restore, the scripture um, requires them to restore the 12, and so they must find a, a replacement for Judas. They're going to have to find a replacement for Judas. And what we're going to see here in verses 21 and 22 are the requirements that are set out for, to, to be one of those 12. Um, let's just read those two verses, 21 and 22, together. It says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness. There's the word again. They must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And so here we see two clear requirements of who needs to be um, selected to be the next apostle. Um, it says they must have been a disciple. They must have been with Jesus from the very beginning, from the baptism to his ascension. They had to have been a faithful disciple through all of, all of that time hearing Jesus' teachings, being with Jesus. And then second, they must have been there at the resurrection. They, they, they were required to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus Christ because that's what they're going to be um, witnesses of. Um, a couple more points um, on being an apostle. Um, we're going to see it in the next couple of verses that um, they must be appointed. The, the disciples are going to seek Christ himself to find out who is to be chosen. A couple men met the requirements, but Lord Jesus, which one do you want to be the next apostle? So you must be um, appointed by Jesus himself. And then another helpful um, text that I've always just kind of remembered and, and gone to in, in discussions on apostleship, but 2 Corinthians 12, 12, I guess we'll see it coming up. And Pastor Milo's preaching, but 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle, speaking of himself in his defense of his apostleship, he says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So to be an apostle, the sign of a true apostle is that you can do signs, wonders, and miracles. Okay, so... Um, how does this bode for, with these requirements in mind, how does this bode for modern-day people who claim to be apostles? You know, um, especially in the, in the same sense that a lot of them are claiming to be like one of the 12. Um, none of them were with Jesus throughout his ministry. None of them eyewitnessed to, to the resurrection. Um, t most, I would say, are not doing signs, miracles, and wonders, you know. So this, this is a, important to understand as far as the requirements of of being an apostle and I don't think we could even have this discussion without mentioning because of his significance because of everything that he did that God used him to write scripture even in the book of Acts to the apostle Paul's um, calling to be an apostle how do we reconcile the apostle Paul being an apostle on the same level as these 12 if he was the first requirement was to be a disciple from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, right? The Apostle Paul was not a believer. He was not um, with Jesus throughout his ministry in that way. Um, so how do we reconcile the fact that the Apostle Paul is a legitimate apostle? Well, there does seem to be um, more apostles assigned later on throughout Scripture. There are a few, a couple of instances um, Barnabas, Paul, um, James, the brother of, of Jesus, um, who becomes a leader in Acts chapter 15 of the, of the early church. But Paul specifically um, is very upfront and open about the basically exception that he is to the rule. Um, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it, when Paul's discussing how the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to all the disciples, the, 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 the original apostles, he says he appeared to all the apostles. He appeared to James, who, which would basically be another exception to this rule. But he says that he appeared to all, even to James. And then he says, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Okay, so the Apostle Paul, in describing his apostleship, says, Jesus Christ appeared to all the, all the apostles. And he includes James, the brother of Jesus, who, who is a, considered an apostle. And then he says, last of all. He appeared to me, Paul, 
So Paul was the last of the apostles to be able to say, Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus Christ appeared to me, and thereby establishing his apostleship. And he, and he says he was a, of one untimely born, recognizing the fact that he didn't fit into this, um, to these requirements here exactly, but uh, we know from the apostles who were of the twelve and their um, accepting of Paul and his apostleship, we know that it's of God. And so God used Paul in, in mighty ways. Um, I'm going to try and do this last page of notes here in three minutes. Um, I don't want us to be late to church. And it is a big topic, but we're really going to try to sum it up here. So it says in verse 23, they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was called Justice, and Matthias. Two men they put forward. And they prayed, it, they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them. And the lot fell to Matthias. And he was added to the eleven apostles. And so what's really interesting about this section here is how the apostles go about determining who's going to be chosen. And, and so they're seeking the will of God on who's going to be the next apostle. They have the requirements. Two men in their group meet them. It could have been more, but they choose these two men, and they say by the casting of lots, which is, to us would be almost like rolling of the dice or something similar to that, in determining the will of God. They cast lots. It, it, it's interesting. And so what's important for us, and it's, and it's a good um, place to stop and make the point of this is going to be one of the jobs of, of studying the book of Acts. And we've kind of already mentioned it, but we have the job of determining what activities in the early church should carry over into our church now, what things were here for a time, what things, you know, maybe carried on for a little while. And all of these things we have to work out. And here's a, just another clear example. The first example I gave was prayer. Prayer was definitely going on in the early church. We can be assured by the rest of the book of Acts, by the rest of the epistles, that prayer should be in our church. Prayer continues. Now, on the flip side of that, the casting of lots. Should the casting of lots to determine the will of God, should that continue? Should we be casting lots to determine who's going to be the next deacon, who's going to be the next elder? Is that how we should seek the will of the Lord? Well, I think obviously the answer is no, but the deeper question is, well, why? Why is it no? If they were doing it in the early church, why aren't we doing it now? There's, there's some things that will that there's some what we'd call like a hermeneutical principles that we would use to determine how to interpret some of these things that happen in the bible how do we know that doesn't continue well i would say in this particular instance and you almost got to look at each activity individually um, but in this instance with the casting of lots um, the casting of lots was very common in the old testament to determine the will of god it was a legitimate thing the umen and the, the thumen that the priest had could determine the will of god um, it's very similar to this. Um, so it was a legitimate way of seeking the will of God in the Old Testament. As we read through the Gospels and see Jesus here with his disciples and is teaching them, we never see the casting of lots being performed with Jesus here with his disciples. We see it here after Jesus has left them and they're here waiting. Um, they cast lots, kind of going back to the, the Old Testament um, way of doing things. But then... After the spirit is given, the spirit that's going to lead them into all truth, we never see the casting of lots again in the book of Acts, throughout the epistles. It's gone. And so all of those are clues that we take into to, uh, to mind, to put together, to determine the fact that the, the scripture ends up being very clear on how it is to determine the will of God. And if any of you have heard the great sermons that are pretty popular, MacArthur has great sermons, R.C. Sproul has great sermons, John Piper on determining the will of God... They're never going to say, go cast lots. They're always going to point you to the word of God, to getting uh, godly counsel, prayer. These types of things are how we determine the will of God. We don't use the casting of lots anymore. And I think another point, the reason the spirit was given to the church in this way is going to help us in determining the will of God as opposed to, um, as opposed to seeking it by the rolling of dice to the casting of lots. Okay. And you and you don't even see you know casting of lots 
even as early as Act 6, you don't see them, you know, when they're in a similar situation trying to appoint some officers to the church. Right. You know, the early deacons, you know, the church there, you know, they don't cast lots for them. Obviously, you know, the pastoral epistles, First Timothy 3, you know, the qualifications of an elder and of a deacon, you know, and appointing it, uh, an officer is never, like you said, it's relegated to casting lots. Now there's like objective criteria. Yeah. And the church, as a consensus, makes a decision based on that. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's very good. So we can, we can turn to these later books, the later epistles, which are describing the church even later than a lot of the book of Acts. And we can look to them to see what was going on in those. How were they acting? Were they acting exactly in the same way in all ways with the accounts of the early book of Acts? Um, I noted just to just to take note of the priority that we can give to the pastoral epistles in particular, because this is what First Timothy three fourteen says. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, "I write to you so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God." So Paul's writing this this these letters specifically telling Timothy how to act, how to conduct yourself in the church, how to run the church. He doesn't mention the casting of lots. He doesn't, you know. So we have objective criteria on how we're to operate in those letters that we can turn to for help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. real quick. Say, uh, in Proverbs, we find how wisdom is found. It says wisdom is found in the council of elders or in the multitude. So we're actually told how to find wisdom. Yeah. It never refers to casting lots. Yeah. Yeah, the casting of lots was a legitimate way, apparently, in the Old Testament. Um, God did give them that for a time, it seems, but now, yeah, now we have the Word of God. We can, we have objective truth on, well, mo- on most of these decisions. I, mean, I also think it speaks, you know, talk about hermeneutics. I mean, it also speaks to the transitionary period of the book of Acts. Yeah. You know, it's like this is precisely where the house church movement errs. Mm-hmm. And you will look in the book of Acts, they made it houses. Well, yeah, that's because they were transitioning away from the synagogue. I mean, the church didn't have citadels where they can go meet. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, But it's never prescribed. There's a difference between description and prescription, you know, like you mentioned. I mean, it's never prescribed that you cast lots. It's never prescribed that you meet in a house. Right. You know, so. Yeah. You know, I had to get that in there. Yeah. Well, I'm glad Emilio ran us over. <laughs> ah, I'm sorry. No, that was my fault. It's, it's going to be it's gonna be hard, guys. This is going to be the work is to really try to get all this in. But as I said, we'll start moving quicker. Don't get your feelings hurt if your favorite passages from the book of Acts don't get really touched on. I mean, it pains me to skip any verses, so I'm right there with you. But um, let's go. Let's go to service now, and um, let's worship the Lord.